Father in heaven, thank you for the nourishment that we enjoyed at lunch. Just pray that you would continue to nourish us at every level, not not just physical, but spiritual and emotionally, socially, mentally. We just ask your continued presence in our discussion today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we we I want to be sure you got a couple of things, and then I'm going to back up a little bit and and uh, and go over some of it a little bit more. Do you all understand? Yeah, let me get the try to get this up again. Do you all understand the concept of the cation exchange capacity? In other words, that a that a, a soil has a certain capacity to hold fertility, to hold nutrients. And I brought the buckets and I put them out here just to kind of, you know, to help you to see. If you have a five-gallon capacity and you fill it with five quarts, you're not full, are you? You got a five quart and you try to put a five gallon, you try to fill it with five gallons, that won't work either, right? So it's that's pretty pressed down. <laughs> um, so it's through it's through colloidal it's through the colloidal exchange system that um, nutrients are actually made available to the plant to grow. And the, and the and the point is here is we want to we want a balanced level of those mineral nutrients. We're we're looking we're looking at the mineral part of it right now, of this overall ideal soil. We're looking at the mineral part, and we have to understand how that how the soil actually works to provide those mineral nutrients to the plant. And uh, this is the dust of the earth, by the way, the earth elements that are provided in the very beginning that God formed man from. So we have to know how that works, which is the cation exchange system. That's a pretty well understood, uh, as far as it's a well documented, well established model. Um, it's just not common, commonly used, for for reasons that I shared before. But we have to know what the and so um, what it's talking about. Of course, we said was the, the cations that have the, the positive charge to them, which are the alkaline elements: the calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. Um, but we need to know not only how big the bucket is or what the capacity is, but then we need to know how much of that bucket should be filled with each of those things. Now I put on there, let me put those numbers up again. I erased them because I wanted to add other stuff there. You want, you want the bucket to be filled all the way, so 100% of the bucket full. If you add those numbers up, do they add up to 100 no, they don't. Now, the reason they don't is because there's other microcations um, that are part of that that um, that bucket, and they're part of the saturation of, of the of those colloids in the soil, and they include um, things like iron, manganese, zinc, copper, and uh, they're actually measured when you're doing a soil test. These major cations are measured in pounds, and I'm going to avoid, I have a book in the, well, it's here. Let me show it to you. My microphone keeps 
Um, it's called it's called the ideal soil by Michael Astera. Now I know Bob Jorgensen has some copies of this here. I don't know how many he has. It's probably the the most distilled down version of of understanding um, this model that we're talking about. Michael Astera, A S T E R A. And it can be gotten off of Amazon. Acres USA has it. And Bob Jorgensen, I'm sure, can get it for you. He has, he has copies there. So if you if you don't get all of this, I mean, there's a, there, he goes into a more detailed step by step explanation and how they come up with the numbers that they come up with. And if you want to understand the whole process and everything, so this is probably a really good book book to have. There, there's a lot of different books you can have, but. Um, as far as getting the basics on it, this is probably the best book that's out there. What, it's about thirty dollars. Um, the ideal soil, and I don't agree with everything philosophically in the book. Um, he doesn't come from the same perspective, but the model that he that he applies is is the correct one, and he's trying to he's trying to explain in here. So. Um, they don't add up to 100% because you have to add, and this is where it gets tricky if you're trying to find a lab to do this this analysis for you, is because uh, not all labs actually measure all of these things. And so you'll have a lab that says they do CEC for you, and they may only measure calcium, magnesium, and potassium. They, they leave out sodium a lot of the times. And they'll leave out what's called the other bases, and that includes those microcations that I was telling you about, the iron and manganese, zinc and copper. But they take a part of the bucket. And in the rest of the bucket, there's a certain percentage of acidity or, or hydrogen ions. Even though they're a cation, a positively charged ion, they actually are acid forming. Um, and there's a certain percentage of that acidity you want in the soil. And so there's going to be a certain percentage of hydrogen and when you add all those things up, that adds to 100% of the bucket. You don't want the bucket 100% full with these. You want a little bit of the acidity there because it's how it's actually the, the soil actually works to provide uh, the cation nutrients to the plant. And, and we haven't talked about the anions yet, and we are. Uh, I want to put up these other microcations here, but, and then we're going to see how those others relate to it. Now we get need need to get to a little bit of what these what these nutritional elements actually do, but when we get down to the microcations here, they're measured in parts per million because it's they're not pounds, um, the, the type of con the quantities that there are pounds of it. But I mean the quantities that you have of the major cations there, and so they generally on a soil test be measured in parts per million, and the, the simplest way to find out how many pounds that is, you multiply it by two. And you'll have how many pounds they're actually talking about. On iron, um, depending on the CEC of the soil, you're shooting for around 300 parts per million. Um, and I'll, I'll write these out as soon as I go down through them. Manganese, you want to be about half to two-thirds of iron, which would be between 150 and 200 parts per million. Now, the numbers I'm sharing with you, if you went out and talked to an organic certifier, they'd have a heart attack when we get into these because they're not going to shoot for one they may be using a different analysis and so the numbers may look different um, but they generally don't shoot for anywhere near the levels that I'm sharing with you but if you want the soil to really thrive once you get those major cations in the balance that they need to be in 
the, the microcations need to be brought up to levels that most people are not used to bringing them up to. About 300 parts per million. So, 600 pounds of iron. Now, that, now what we're talking about is what what they do is they have extraction methods to, to kind of mimic the ability of the biology or the, uh, the root of the plant to be able to, to exchange those off of those exchange sites, those colloidal exchange sites. They have to put an acid out in order to be able to transfer it. What they, what they really do is they put out, they breathe out CO2, carbon dioxide, comes out, it breathes out of the roots. And the CO2 combines with water and you get, you get carbonate. And then the carbonate, the, the hydrogen ion goes to the, to the colloid in exchange for the others. It's chemistry. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even have shared that. It's just it's the way the plant root actually does it, by breathing out, giving out carbon dioxide. There's other dynamics that are going on in order to get what they want. They want a specific, they might want a specific element in specific quantities. And so they have this ability to interact with the soil chemistry and the soil biology to get what they want out of the soil in an exchange system. Well, it'll all depend on the CEC. Now, we, we didn't talk about that, but what, what they normally do is if you want six, so I put the 60 to 70 or 10 to 20, you'll take the percentage you actually want there and you take the, the, the cation exchange capacity, so it's how many units of exchange capacity they are, and you'll multiply, well, there's a, we didn't do the milliequivalence thing. This is the chemistry they use to, ca to calculate it, but each, each element has a different atomic weight and their, their equivalents, the numbers they use are equivalents to, to hydrogen. In other words, the number you would use for calcium is 400, the number for magnesium is 240, the number for potassium is 780, and the number for sodium is 460. And what you do is you multiply the exchange capacity, or how big the bucket is, by the milliequivalent number, of, depending on which one it is, and then you multiply it by the percentage you want there. So let's just take, let's take calcium, for example, and we wanted 60% calcium on a cation exchange soil of 10. So it has an exchange capacity of 10. So say it's a uh, two-gallon bucket. It has an exchange capacity of 10. You would multiply that times 400. You get 4,000. And then you'd multiply that by 60%. So what does that work out to? Um, 2,400 pounds? <laughs> Let's say six times four. Ten times four hundred times point six. It's actually a number that measures based on atomic weights uh, an equivalent of the equivalent amount of calcium to one gram of of hydrogen in a hundred grams of soil. Milli equivalent, yeah, and so. Um, the equivalent of calcium hydrogen has an atomic weight of one. Calcium has an atomic weight of four forty, and so it, you, it's math, and you have to calculate it. But it's it's a relation; it's an equivalent because you want the equivalent amount that would actually fit cover that many exchange sites in a soil. So, so ten times four hundred would be four thousand, and then you multiply that times point six. So I think that's 2,400 if I'm correct. So you would want 2,400 in a CEC soil of 10. You'd want 2,400 pounds of calcium. That, that's assuming you're starting at zero. 
Right. See, so that if that if you, that's what you want. Now, when you get your soil analysis back, it's going to tell you what you actually have. And so you may want 2,400 pounds. You may have 2,000. You may have 3,000. This is why you need to you need to have a model that you can measure by, so that you know, okay, where am I in relation to that, in relation to that model, so I know what to do. So let's say you have 2,000 pounds and you need 2,400 pounds. You're going to have to add a material, a soil amendment that's going to provide you with 400 pounds of calcium, elemental calcium, not calcium carbonate or, or some compound, but the actual element, elemental calcium. Yeah, look, um, like for example, we were talking about iron. You were asking to say it was 600 pounds. Iron is, the, is one of the most abundant elements on the planet. And so in any given soil, you may have thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds per acre of iron. What's that? 40,000. 40,000 pounds is the average amount of iron in an acre of soil. But it's all complexed and tied up. It's not available to the plant. So what, what's being measured here is plant-available nutrients. They're not soluble. They're held by those charges. They're held from leaching on those, those colloids, but they're available to the plant. And so that's what we're measuring. We're not measuring the total content. If you were to measure the total content, you might have thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds of some of these, these uh, mineral elements in the soil, and particularly iron is, a, is one of the most abundant in, in the soil. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to find out what the capacity of the soil is and then what is the ideal level, you know, how much of that capacity do you want filled with this particular element. And so that's the calculations that are done. And, and, and it's all done in, the ideal, in this book, The Ideal Soil. So if you want to know how that's all calculated out, it explains it pretty well in there, um, how, that's all, how that's all figured out. So, for example, uh, um, if you uh, magnesium, if you wanted 10% magnesium, the uh, equivalent milliequivalent is 400, and you want 10%, and you got a CEC of 10. So you multiply 10 times 240 is 2400, and then you multiply that by 0.1, so you want 240 pounds of calcium. You're going to see you're going to see that calcium calcium is the dominant is the element you want to dominate in the soil. I believe that there's so much more knowledge in all of this that we don't even we don't even come. That, I've been working on this for years to try to understand, but I think all of these um, represent characteristics of God, and I think that calcium is probably the love element. It's the element that buffers everything else. It's the element that facilitates all the other nutrients to get into the plant. It's the and it's one that it allows you to to take some of these other trace elements and raise them to levels that if they were if the calcium level wasn't adequate was too low and wasn't able there to moderate it um, it would become it would become a problem it might become toxic but when we raise all those other things to the levels they need to be then we can benefit from all these other quality these other characteristics in the soil to a, a higher extent but let me just illustrate like uh, manganese for example manganese I'll go down all of them in a second, but manganese is essential for germination. It's, it's essential for the formation of seed. An atom of manganese is actually central to the formation of seed, and it draws everything else into the seed. And if you don't have it there, you'll on crops like fruit, for example, where you get you ever opened a piece of fruit and the and the pit is split, and there's no seed or the seed's rotten in there. 
good chance he doesn't have anywhere near enough manganese in the soil. Well, it's a, it's not completely true. I have my, my questions every once in a while about seedless fruits, about whether, because, you know, God said that, you know, the fruit bearing seed, so, and it's actually a, I, I don't know how I've land on that quite yet, but it's actually a, where they combine a, a, a quadruploid with diploid with a diploid, and you get a tetraploid, which can't it can't reproduce everything because the genetics are are not equalized in it, and so you, you don't get seed production. And so the reason they do it is, of course, because people, well. You know, kids used to love spitting watermelon seeds and everything like that, but these days nobody wants to have to deal with the seeds in a watermelon. And and uh, you can actually, what happens is when they breed it that way, is a lot more energy is putting in put into the flesh, and so you get tend to get a sweeter watermelon and and those type of things because it's not putting any energy into producing seed. You know, that's a little bit contrary to biblical principles, I think, but um, but I, there's a lot of things that are higher priority before you get to that one. I think so. Um, copper, copper uh, is uh, usually an organic certification. They won't, they generally won't allow you to go above two parts per million on that, which is about four pounds of available copper on a per acre basis. But if you really want the full benefit of copper, you need to be up close to about ten. Ten parts per million on the soil test. Yeah. And I know I know people that have when they have really good numbers, especially on a higher CEC soil, berry growers will push it sometimes to fifteen or twenty. And you know what happens is your fungal diseases go away. You just don't have fungal diseases because of the dynamics that copper has in 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 uh, the development of natural antibiotics, antifungal um, compounds, and uh, you know, for example, any of you know I've heard of Bordeaux mixture before. You know that they use in orchards on trees and everything, which is a combination of calcium and, and copper. Um, a lot of times that would be sprayed on, and what was really happening is the plant was actually getting the nutrition it needed. It was a reactive thing, it was part partially a reactive thing, where the reaction itself helped to to kill the organisms. But a lot of it was the the, the tree actually getting the nutrients it needed. It should have been getting out of the ground, and it got it via the the material that was being put on. Um, it actually it'll actually prevent fungal well not by itself now this is again we have to keep coming back to you need the whole you need the whole picture you need the whole model but copper contributes to um, preventing fungal diseases the other one it does and it's not even measured this is what's measured on a test with i haven't put the anions up there yet but one is that the most the most abundant Mineral on the planet is silicon. Sand, you know, we, we you know we think of sand, you know, silicon, um, because because of the way the soil has been treated, the biology in the soil is pretty much wiped out, and so in spite of the fact that you have the most abundant element on the planet, plants are not getting enough silicon anymore. Research has just been recently done on this, and a lot of research was done in the past, but um, if you're growing cucurbits, for example. Well, let me show you with this. But Burrell Seeds out in Colorado, they breed melons and watermelons. They're a watermelon breeder and everything. And in their catalog, they, they make this statement, you shouldn't plant watermelons on the same ground two years in a row because there's something in the soil that's not readily replaced that 
will prevent you from having a second crop of good watermelons on the on the soil. So you plant it. So they like here's a watermelon breeder, and they they're putting in there something in the soil is silicon. If you don't get adequate silicon, you don't get adequate uh, cell wall construction, and if you don't get adequate cell wall construction, you you don't get adequate protection from fungal diseases, and so. And you'll ha you'll hear people say, for example, well, watermelons grow best on a sa on certain soils, and they don't go so well on others. Well, it's because there's silicon available, <laughs> and so you can grow them on a heavy soil, but you just have to have, make sure that there's adequate silicon available. And one of the things that I do when I when I grow my seedlings is I just use diatomaceous earth, and I put it, I sprinkle it into my mix, and I ha you have the the amorphous silica in the in the diatomaceous earth, and it you got good biology in there, and it breaks, it releases it, and you get. It doesn't take much. I mean, sometimes we think this is a lot of stuff you have to put on there, but the plants are just taking up tiny, tiny bits of these mineral elements. Well, yeah, I know to do that to ants, but I don't. I don't spread it. I, I use another material, which we're going to get into. Sean will share about this. I only use that when I'm doing my germinating mix and coast. So, so I, I don't have I don't have earthworms in that. You know, out in my soil. But I tell you, you want to see the earthworms multiply, remineralize re the ground. When I was digging potatoes this fall, we just started mineralizing this ground. When I was digging potatoes this fall, there were earthworms all around them everywhere, just running out of the ground and and everything. And grape growers, uh, if you want to protect your grapes from fungal and fungal diseases, get this the, the, minute, the chemistry in there as it needs to be, and then bring the copper levels. In. But be sure, see, the problem is labs don't even measure silicon. Well, you know, going back to the silicon, they don't even measure silicon because it's assumed that it's just there. It's the most abundant mineral. It's all over the place, and it's, so it's just there, and it's going to be available. But the reality is with the deterioration of the biology in the soil, in a lot of cases, it's just not available. And Rutgers University was the most one that did the most recent research on that, showing that um, the use of silicon on uh, cucurbits would prevent, prevent fungal diseases, like downy mildew, powdery mildew. And one of the reasons that melons don't produce sweet watermelons, or for example, one of the reasons... Or melons are not sweet is because they, as those fungal diseases attack and attack the leaves, they lose their photosynthetic capacity, and so too much of the energy is going to just the plant surviving and trying to fight this fungal infection, as opposed to that energy going into sugar um, storage in the in the fruit, and the energy going into the fruit. So. Well, I was sharing earlier, uh, copper. If you want sweet watermelons. Copper will give you really sweet watermelons. Sulfur. Who would think sulfur? But sulfur and copper will give you. What's happening is, look, these, these these elements are used, a lot of these are not only used structurally, but they're used in the process of using energy. They're catalysts and they're enzymes and, and, and all of these things that facilitate the construction of the plant and the, and the operation of the plant. And when you, have, when you have good levels of them there, the plant operates at a very high level. And so it maximizes the use of that energy that's receiving from photosynthesis and it's capturing the air elements. It, it, you know, the air elements are being captured and stored as energy. And then the, the earth elements, the minerals, are taking that energy that was stored in, in, uh, from the air elements and building it into complex compounds. It's building the plant and then building the, the, the uh, machinery to facilitate, which is what we're called to do, to grow, mature, and to bear fruit, to reproduce. And 
um, most of the soils, most of the soils in, in the world now are not very good at that anymore. They're, they can, they can produce a yield, but it's like I was talking about earlier. It's, it's a yield that's actually generated from photosynthates. So you're, you got a bulk of energy stored up, but you have no way to burn it. There's no power because you don't have the minerals that are necessary to burn that energy and to build that energy. Because it's building blocks. It's like lumber. We build our houses out of lumber. Well, a plant takes those, those um, energy compounds, and you build a plant, build the machinery, build all the things that operate the plant, and to, to grow it and mature. And, I mean, you could correlate this kind of to, in the church these days, we're just fattening people up in the pews. We're not growing up and maturing as Christians, and we're not bearing fruit. And so it, these same phenomena kind of happen. You see the same, the same realities happening across a lot of different disciplines. Yeah. Manganese, now, well, I shared this book, the, the Ideal Soil, with you. And in that book, he says 50 parts per million. But actually, and again, you have to remember what I shared before. I'm going on Albrecht's numbers. There, there are a lot of different things out there called cation exchange and called Albrecht, but they're not really his actual his actual analysis, the total cation exchange um, model and the, and the protocols that were followed to, a de to derive the numbers. So in the book, for example, Michael Astor says that 50 parts per million is the most you should have. But until you get to 100, you're not really benefiting from manganese. And the, uh, grains, if you're growing grains, wheat, for example, the highest yielding wheat soils in the world have manganese levels of 200 to 250. And I'm talking about instead of getting 50, 60, 70 bushels of wheat, I'm talking 200 bushels of wheat. Now, the guys that are doing this, that, that, another interesting thing, hang on a second. Step, stepping on that. Um, another interesting about that is they're using old varieties of wheat. The guys that are getting these yields are using the old varieties of wheat that grow tall. Now, they're using growth regulators on them to keep them shorter. But I, I saw some pictures of uh, one of the growers in his field, and these heads of wheat are like this. Now, the difference between being profitable as a farmer and not being so much is having a wheat head like that as opposed to one that like that. Have you ever, been, have you ever looked at it? You know, we, we grow a lot of uh, dryland wheat out in Colorado. You, you go on those fields, and the, and the wheat's this high. Wheat should be this high. When you grow that big, but you know why they stopped growing those old varieties of wheat? Because, <clears throat> no, because of the chemical revolution that came in, they convinced the growers to use nitrogen that they used to build bombs with. And they convinced the growers that plants use nitrogen, so they started applying the nitrogen. And the plants grew wonderful. They grew bigger and everything like that. But guess what happened to them? They fell over. Because they didn't have the they didn't have the stock strength because now they had too much nitrogen in, in relation to potassium and that's another thing potassium manganese and uh, copper give you stock strength it's helped and, and it gives you not only the strength to stand up but it gives you the resilience the, the flexibility if you got cracking in a lot of fruit and things like that and brittleness copper is a deficient deficiency people with um, well, it builds collagen, for example. It, it builds elasticity into the cell structure. And so like tomatoes, if you grow tomatoes and they're cracking, part of it's probably part of it can be 
because you got too many soluble nutrients in there. And it's coming in and it's pulling water in because it's trying to dilute the salt content because you have those free, those free salts in there, those free mineral, uh, soluble minerals. The plant's not supposed to have them like that. It's supposed to be built into those complex compounds. Remember what I was talking about before? Um, and so it'll pull the water in. And if you don't have enough copper in there, and even if you do sometimes, if you've got too many soluble nutrients in it, it'll split it out. But if you have enough copper in there, it allows the, the, the skin of the, uh, the fruit to flex, to stretch a little bit. Um, it's uh, turkeys. You know, veterinarians sometimes know a whole lot about nutrition than, <laughs> than, uh, than people do. You know, as far as human health, they know a whole lot more because, you know, people that raise livestock, they depend on those animals getting to the, to the market they got to keep them alive till they get in there to kill them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I ran into a, a guy racing down the road one time with these cows that looked like they were upside down with their feet in the air and everything. And I said, are those, where, what are you in such a big hurry? He came flying by me. And I, I had a CB, so I asked him what he was in such a big hurry about. He said, I got to get to the slaughterhouse before they die. They, they, can't, they won't take them if they're dead when they get there. And everything. I said, what slaughterhouse are you taking them to? And who, who's meat do they who do they supply their meat to he said it goes to burger king he said i don't need a burger king anymore in fact he said i don't need any fast food restaurants at all anymore he said if you saw the stuff i saw um the, the the truth is like for example dairy cows because animals depend on the same things that we depend on dairy cows they used to milk they can milk them for eight to ten years and then put them out to pasture retire them and put them out to pasture and they might live another ten years uh, today they milk a dairy cow for about six months and then they send it to the slaughterhouse because that's the animal is about had it they're about they're about done for and so and just remember these things you know when this the same stuff that's feeding them is feeding us um, so Again, you, you want all of these things. We, I, I want you to always remember the model and that we, it, it needs to be complete and balanced. So when I talk about an individual thing, I'm not saying, because I was sharing it, so I'll just share the whole thing because I shared it with some of you. On the copper, uh, this one grow, watermelon grower was told that if you, grow, if you put about, he was told just put 20 pounds of copper on. Now, it was in relation to everything else he had as far as his chemistry went. Put 20 pounds of copper on, you get a lot sweeter watermelons. Well, like we think in human nature and everything, he thought, well, if 20 pounds is good, then 40 is going to be better. And so it wasn't even 40 that was better. He went home, and it was supposed to be broadcast. And so he went back to his fields, and he banded 70 pounds of copper underneath his rows of uh, watermelons. Now, thankfully, he had the buffering influence of good calcium levels and everything, and because it was banded, the plants just kind of bypassed it. They took what they wanted. They sent roots in close to it and got what they needed and then bypassed this big concentration of copper. And he got away with it, but you don't always get away with things like that. Um, so the two things, complete and balanced, you don't, want to, you don't want to exaggerate or overdo it on any particular thing. You want to get to the optimum levels and go from there. So anyway, I don't think I did it. But you know, iron, you want to shoot for about 300, pa 300 parts per million. It'll vary a little bit depending on, depending on the CEC of the soil. The heavier the soil, the, you may want to go up to uh, 360. And uh, 
And then manganese, you're shooting for about 200. Uh, on a higher CEC soil, it can be 240. On a lower CEC soil, you might reduce it down a little bit on both of those. It's just simply because you don't have the balancing inf influence of, of larger. Remember, we just did those calculations to see how many pounds. I, we did 10 pounds, and it came out to 2,400 pounds of calcium. If we do a 20 CEC soil and we calculate it out, it's going to be 4,800 pounds of calcium. If you do a 30 CEC soil, which uh, Robert back there has one, it's a 30 CEC soil, you're now at, um, what is that, 7,200 pounds of calcium, all to maintain the balance. You see, could you imagine trying to put 72, if you, if you didn't know what size bucket you had, what the capacity of that soil was, and you thought, oh, I'll put eight tons of calcium carbonate on this soil that can only handle one ton. And I think so it's important to know how the you know what how big the bucket is first. Um, copper, I said, you know, you can shoot for five to ten pounds. Two parts per million is the minimum. And that in organic certifying circles, two parts per million is all they'll allow you to do. But you're just at the bare minimum at that point. You're barely getting the benefit of, of copper. It's on those. They consider what the what the lab says is sufficiency, which is generally two parts per million. Most of the labs are running it the same way. Probably. There's some like there's some crazy there's some crazy rules out there, and so if the lab says sufficiency is twenty, then the certifier might say, well, it says sufficiency here, so they might let you do that, but it doesn't mean it's it all depends on what you're removing. If you're if you're taking it all out the farm gate, you have to put it back. You know, if it's a, I think I talked to some people in between meetings about this. Um, if it's just cycling back in, like if you have trees and the leaves are falling there and all the nutrients are just going right back and cycling back into the system, well, once you get it balanced out, you may not have to do anything. Now, we're, the, the environmental influence, which we're going to talk about at, tomorrow morning. Um, plays a role in that rainfall, which is all rainfall is acid. And so, if you're in a high rainfall area, the acidity of that rainfall is going to is going to want to leach, you know, nutrients out of your your soil. And so, you have to take that into consideration when you're managing it. But if you're if you're harvesting crops and you're selling them off the farm, then the minerals that are going with it have to you have to be mindful of the minerals that are going with it. Now, the major elements you're going to have to pay closer attention to. Over time, the minor ones, for example, like the, the iron and manganese and copper and zinc, but particularly copper and zinc, once you get those to the levels they need to be at, you may not touch them for another 10, 15, 20 years. Because there's a, there's a dynamic, a chemical dynamic that happens, and you need to get these, these different elements to a certain level because they influence each other. And it balances how they flow into the plant. And so... You don't need 10 parts per million or 20 pounds of copper. It might take you 20, 30 years, 40 years to use up that much copper. But you want, you want the balance there because it influences how things flow into the plant, what, what flows into the plant. And so the problem here with most, most people is that so much has been taken for so long that you know, a lot of these are just depleted to levels where you may need to, to apply significant amounts of them in the short term, but then once you get it there, you can it'll be there for a while, and you'll benefit from a while for a while, and so.
Right, because you're taking more you're taking more out. Now, like for example, calcium, if you got a say you have a CEC of of the 10 and you got 2400 pounds and on an annual basis you're taking 50 pounds out with the crop. You know, I'm just taking some some generalizations. You're taking 50 pounds out with the crop on average. Well, how many years is it going to take before you get down to a level where you now, I, I always manage it at its optimum level. I want to make sure that it's at its optimum level all the time. So I test every single year, and sometimes I test every six months. Because when you're growing high-value crops, now, that may, sound, that may sound excessive, but I pay, it costs about $50 to have the comprehensive tests done. Now, there's a couple other elements I'm going to talk about, cobalt and molybdenum, that should be done. You have to pay separately for those two because test them. Each of those tests themselves cost fifteen dollars. But if you don't have those two there, you're never getting a natural nitrogen cycling. And cobalt, cobalt is the eighty percent of the more than eighty percent of the biology in the soil depends on cobalt for B12 and for nitrogen fixation. Molybdenum is the same way for nitrogen fixation and nitrogen utilization, the building of proteins. Um, but Here's another one where the certifying, the, you know, the NOP rules, the National Organic Rules, say that you can apply cobalt in a feed supplement. As a mineral element, you can put cobalt sulfate into a feed, but you're not allowed to put it in the soil. Now, wouldn't it make more sense to put it in the soil and let everything that needs to benefit from it to benefit from it, and then, and then uh, ultimately the animals and the people benefit from it coming by that way? So what I'm trying to help you do here is get some, a reasonable and principled approach to all of this so that you, you can intelligently apply these things. And you're going to have to decide yourselves what labels or what, how you want to identify yourself because most of those, you know, they have a, a, a philosophy to them. But a lot of cases it's more of a marketing advantage because people perceive, that I, I don't remember if I share this, but people perceive they want that like, for example, organic or naturally grown or locally grown or some of these terms mean clean, nutritious food. And it may mean clean, nutritious food, but it may not. And so what we want to make sure that we bring to people is clean, nutritious food. And so call it whatever you want. People ask me all the time, well, you know, like the veganics is a big, a big thing being promoted is using only plant-based fertilizers. And no animal-based fertilizers or, or natural materials and stuff. Somebody asked me, "Well, what do you think about veganics?" I said, "If it provides everything that the crop need, that the soil needs, it's wonderful. If it doesn't, not so much." And so it's you know, I'm not saying it to say to be negative negative towards any of these particular things, but we want to embrace these these ideas. But we need to measure them against a competent model and say, okay, how does this work with what, um, what we're trying to accomplish? And if it may be able to be accomplished that way, and if it can, boy, that's the best way to do it. I'd have to say there's some cases it wouldn't. In a lot of cases it would, and, that, and, that, and, I, and that's the best approach. It's the best approach because animal-based products have some serious hazards with them. It's just the way it is. Now, if I have a complete and balanced mineralization and I have great organic matter levels and I get the, this, the soil structuring so that I got good air and, and water 
exchange and movement in the soil and I get the biology cranking in that soil, my opinion is, is that they're going to, if I have to put an animal product on there, I'm going to try to use it judiciously. If it's needed in order to achieve balance in the soil, I'm going to use it judiciously and, I'm, and I have a high degree of confidence that that biology is going to degrade whatever hazards are in it. Now, it's not going to be, it's not going to be my first choice. And I'm going to do everything I can to come up with a solution that uh, that um, doesn't doesn't include that. But I wouldn't eliminate it completely because look, we live in a messed up world, and so sometimes we need to get where we need to be. And uh, and if that means we have to do some of these things. Now, having said that, said that, I think you need to really make sure that you did everything you could to investigate and find out whether it was a better alternative. And there are certainly some things that I would not use, some animal products I absolutely would not use. But you know, in certified organic, you're allowed to use, you're allowed to use compost and manure coming from CAFOs, from confinement feed animal feed operations, who are being fed GMO crops. They're being pumped with drugs. They're being pumped with hormones. They're being pumped with antibiotics. Yes, and certified again. I guess I didn't share this. I should share this. Um, because this is where, again, people's perception is we want clean, nutritious food. And their idea is that because of this label, we're, you look in, the, look in the markets anymore. You, you see how many words are coming up. Local, natural, you know, all these terms are being put on foods that I guarantee you are not clean and nutritious and everything. But, you know, you're allowed to use these things. But here, all these antibiotics that are being used, guess what? What do antibiotics do? They kill life. And so guess what's happening to all the life in the gut of that animal? And then when that animal uh, uh, defecates and they take that and they compost it, which is they supposedly compost it, but there's nothing to compost it. It's all dead. And so what happens is rather than it being composted, it just sits there and ages. And so then after a certain amount of time, it's supposedly compost, and they take it and they spread it on the field. And uh, there's pretty, pretty uh, profound amount of evidence now that what's happening is particularly in the vegetative part of plants. So if you're eating broccoli or lettuce or spinach or carrots, those type of things, the actual vegetative part as opposed to the fruit, there's even some evidence that the fruit is having a problem now. But you're going to find drugs. You're going to find hormones and all kinds of things in the tissue of that plant. A lot of things we don't want in our diet, let's put it that way. Exactly, boy, I tell people, you know, if you, that you really need, well, it's been shared already here, you really need to know where your food's coming from. Well, I'm talking about a degrading the compound, so it's actually not a, you know, not in its, compound form anymore so it's no longer a drug it's actually broke it down into its you know most of those drugs are actually air elements so they're they're carbon hydrogen and oxygen with some mineral elements added to it it could be sulfur it could be nitrogen it could be some other um, elements that are added to it that all of these pharmaceuticals and all that kind of stuff they're kind of perversions of of natural compounds and so it's been demonstrated that biology can you know i mean uh his name is Hendrika Shravan up in the Northwest. He does remediation, soil remediation. And uh, he'll take in biology and, and it'll, it'll degrade 
oil, gasoline, um, all kinds of chemicals. He just he puts the right combination of biology in the soil, and uh, and it'll degrade it. There was a, a case where uh, Paul Allen, who is the one of the co-founders of Microsoft, um, he lives on an island up there in the Northwest, and it's all multimillionaires that live on the island. And his house was down below, and this another millionaire bought this house up top, and it had all this natural vegetation on this steep hillside. And he didn't like the natural vegetation. He wanted to put, I don't remember what he wanted to plant there, but he had him come in and spray diesel oil all over the, the hillside to kill everything. And I think a few chemicals and stuff like that. Well, within a short period of time, the whole hillside started sliding down into Paul Allen's <laughs> house. And they called in. They they tried to think of, can we concrete the whole hill? Can we, can we, um, how can we shore it up? And all these kind of things. They had kind of come up with all these solutions to it. And they finally called him in. And he told him that he could have it stabilized in 48 hours. And... It was going to cost them for him to do it, but they brought him in, and he 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 got he figured his his biological blend that he needed to put on there. He he made kind of like he makes like a kind of like a compost tea kind of thing. Sprayed it on that hillside, and within 24 hours, it was stabilized, and it stopped sliding. So biology can do some pretty powerful things, and really, this model, its ultimate objective, you get the chemistry right, so that that gives you the physical structuring that you need so that the biology in that soil can thrive. It's the same things that we need. We need shelter, we need air, we need water, and we need nu nu nutrition. And you're giving all those things to that biology. And look, there's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of different species of organisms in there. When we do biology, I'm only going to touch on the, on the main groups and some of the particulars of some of them, but we don't even know everything that could be done. And the, the thing is that man is trying to decide how everything should be done. And for example, you'll have a field and it's deteriorating and because they've pretty much degraded the, the mineralization in the soil, then the humus content starts going, getting burnt out. They're burning it out and it's going down. So the biology starts starving. So they're not gluing the soil together anymore. Then the humus content's what holds water. Uh, a 1% humus can hold a one inch rain. A 5% humus can hold a five inch rain and then dole that water out over time. And so, you know, you start losing those things, and the next thing, you know, you're starting to manage everything. The organic matter, once it's broken down in its most stable form, it's broken down into a stable form, it'll, it'll be there for a while. Any, anything that was once living or is living, that's uh, in the soil. So... So what, what's the result? You start putting more and more chemicals on to, to kill off all the problems that are going on. Your soil starts, it, it starts washing away. So now they're putting, they're putting uh, acrylamides on the soil to glue it together. Where the biology used to keep it glued together, you're now spraying acrylamides on it, glues, synthetic glues on the soil to hold it together. And because there's no water holding ability, they're putting polymers in the soil have you ever seen those little crystals? They swell up and they hold water. They sell them at garden centers and everything now. you got farmers and they're going to spread that on their soil trying to hold water because the humus content's gone. And, and there's no... So where does it end? The, the thing is, once you do one thing... It's like this vicious cycle where you do one thing wrong and you, got, you, you make another bad decision and you, to try to put out that fire and you do something else wrong. And it's like this vicious vortex you just go down into. 
The wonderful thing is when you turn it around, you start doing the right thing. One good thing, I was sharing with somebody in the back there where, where the reality is a lot of growers just, you don't want to bankrupt somebody trying to restore their soil. And a lot of people are just so backed up against the wall. They may say, well, look, I deal with this with growers all the time. I only have a couple hundred buck budget, $200 budget. And I've done his soil and he needs $800 worth of materials. And so I'm not going to tell him, well, you have to put $800 worth of material on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to prioritize. What can I do for him that will make that better? It's not going to be everything. This is how God works with us, by the way. He doesn't expect, he, he takes what we can, what can we can get, return, what we can do. And he, he, he helps us along with that. And so what, what happens is when you get one thing better, then next year they have, they have a little less problems. They have a little better yield. And so they have a little more income and then they have a little more to work with. And so the next year you do a little more. And some people, some people, it might take them 10, 20 years to do everything they need to do. Uh, some people, it may take them two or three years. And so, but the goal is to get you going the right direction. So if you don't get this all in, in one year or even or three years, you're going the right direction and you want to keep going. But, but all of these things start to reestablish. Now, I was sharing about the nitrogen. This is, this is kind of what happened. Uh, after World War II. Now, the chemical agriculture had already come in by the 1840s. You know, the devil was already working counter. All this stuff came in in the 1840s. And there's a reason why. But the 1840s, you know, what happened in 1844? You know, the devil knew what God was doing. And so he was going to put as many things in place to counter what, to put counterfeits as many as he could in place to confuse the world and and to oppose, you know, the the purposes of God. Yeah, all of them. There's a lot of things that came in then. But what they did is they pushed the nitrogen on the farmers. And it looked great. Plants started growing and were lush and green and everything like that. But everything started falling over. Because it was lodging. It, was too, it didn't have the stock strength anymore. And so it started lodging as far as the crops go. And so the farmers said, well, this is great, but it's all falling over and we can't harvest it. You'll see a lot of bad decisions were made as a result of this because instead of backing up and reevaluating what they were doing, the next step was, well, the, the guys pushing the nitrogen said, well, what, you, what the problem is is you don't have enough potassium, and so you need to add more potassium to the soil in order to get better stock strength. And so they started selling them potassium, uh, particularly as potassium chloride, which is a disaster. <laughs> It's the cheapest source and it's the most common source used in agriculture. But if you want to destroy the capacity of the soil to bear, to bear fruit in the long haul, chloride off of potassium. Potassium chloride is one of the number one things that will destroy the colloidal capacity of the soil. But so, and then animals. Now, animals that were eating this grass and everything that was grown, they became infertile. They weren't reproducing anymore. And so... Of course, the people raising livestock said, well, this looks great. It's wonderful. We're getting all this grass, but the animals won't reproduce anymore. They're not reproducing. And so they went into the lab and they came back out and they said, well, the problem is there's not enough phosphate. So you need to, you need to put more phosphate on the soil. And I could keep going on with this illustration. And as they exaggerated one thing on top of another and on top of another, they never really got to a complete and balanced situation. They just got into a more incomplete and imbalanced situation. And so the next steps were the drugs started coming in. 
and you need to you need to give them this drug and that drug and everything else. Um, there's a there's a dairy. I didn't finish. I shared the one about the ranches in Australia, but there's a dairy in Australia. They milk about a thousand cows. Now, look, scale is not. It doesn't matter the scale you're at. It's just that at a larger scale, it becomes more difficult to to competently manage a growing system because you have an environmental influence, which we're going to talk about tomorrow. You have you know, factors like the weather and working ground when it's in the appropriate condition to work it. When you got to work five acres, it's a lot different than trying to work 5,000 acres. And a lot of times you're pressured into doing things when it's not the optimum time to do it. But this dairy over in Australia, they milked about 1,000 cows. And they decided they were having so many problems with the health of the animals and everything. They decided to, to restore mineralization to their soil to balance it. And after four years, they were making a million dollars a year more. Now, the, the important thing about this number is that of that $4 million, it was about, they had increased, a little bit of increased milk production. The quality of the milk went up. So it wasn't really a big increase in milk production. So they got about $200,000 from increased milk production and quality of the milk, the cream content of the milk and everything. They made $800,000 a year more because they saved that much money in drugs and vet bills. They say they made $800,000 a year more because they saved that much money in drugs and vet bills because their animals were so much healthier. Well, you know, 50 years ago, we were spending twice as much money on food as we are now. Well, 50 years ago, we were spending about half, or today we're spending about, let me, let me flip it around the other way. Today we're spending about half as much on food as we did 50 years ago. And we're spending five times as much on health care. So, but yeah, the problem is the food has less than half the value. And so we keep getting this idea that we want cheaper and cheaper and cheaper food. But in the process, we're, we're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper food. And so we're paying for it another way. It's way more expensive. I tell people food should cost, you know, if you, if you drank milk, and you know, I don't drink milk, but if you drank cow's milk, cow's milk ought to cost, what's it cost, three fifty, four dollars $4 a gallon, depending on what part of the country you're in, about $4 a gallon for milk. All those dairy farmers are on, on welfare. They're on subsidies. If you really wanted to produce a, a good gallon of milk, it'd cost about, you'd have to pay about 8 to $12 a gallon in the grocery store. Exactly, all of it. Now, animal products are a lot more expensive to produce. That's another reason to eat plant-based foods because you can get a whole lot more nutrition for a lot less cost because it, it resource-wise, it takes a lot more resources to produce animal foods than it does uh, plant foods. So, And they're heavily subsidized. I mean, steak, would, I think one of the numbers I saw was it, it's horrendous, the amount of water and, and uh, other resources it takes to make one gallon of milk, but... I think steak, I think if you took all the subsidies away, I, one of the numbers I saw was about $90, $90 a pound. And so, but the way they produce it is cheap. And so people, they want to fill their bellies and they want cheap, they, they can't, the whole system is really out of whack. And so we're resorting to filling our bellies rather than nourishing ourselves. And uh, we're paying the consequences for it. So, um, so. About 50 years ago, 
Now, actually, within the last five years, it's gotten way worse. Um, healthcare has gone even, you know, well beyond five times more. So listen, there's a whole lot more to it than that. So I tell people, when I try to reason with people, one of the things that happens, because, you know, I want to produce as much nutritious food as I can for as many people, and I want to make it as economical as I possibly can for them, but I'm not going to compromise how I do it because then I'm not providing them with what I really want to provide them with and everything. So it costs more to do that. It just simply costs more to do that. I don't use some label or something like that to justify that it costs more. In, in order to restore the health of the soil, it's going to cost us something to put that back. But this is, this is an important point about that. In animal studies, and it's just as true for people as it is for animals, is that when you feed them highly mineralized, nutritious food, they eat way less. And so... In the feed conversion studies, what you'll see is you'll see when, uh, and this has been verified over and over and over, where I, I remember one study with lambs and where it took, where a lamb on the same amount of feed that was poor quality, the lambs gained, I think it was four pounds. On a high quality, highly mineralized feed, they gained 14 on the same amount of food. And so when I communicate with people, I say, look, I know this is going to cost you more. But in the end, it's going to cost you less because you're going to eat less of it and you're going to be satisfied. A lot of the health problems you, you wind up having are going to clear up and you're, not, you're going to be more functional. You're going to be happier. You're going to have more resources actually to, to, to um, put into your life than, than you, you would have otherwise. And I think that's something we need to understand about the gospel because we get this idea that somehow or another it's just going to cost us so much to do that. We don't realize that it's going, to, it's going to save us so much. It's going to save us so much. And so I know there's a lot of ideas out there about, you know, different ways of, of reaching the marketplace and stuff like that. And there's a lot of, you know, fashionable vegetables, the baby vegetables, the microgreens, the baby greens. The, I think one of the ones Johnny's just came out with is the, is the what do they call them, kalets? They're a kale... Um, Brussels sprout, yeah, Brussels sprout, cross. And so there are all these fashionable vegetables. And, you know, I, you know I'm not, if, if somebody's able to do that and, and, and reach people, then it's wonderful. But my, like I said, my goal is the average person eats staple vegetables. And I, how can I get as, you know, and I live in a, where I live in Kentucky, we have multimillionaires, these big, you know, fancy horse farms. And then just up the road, we have people living in shacks. And, and so I want, to, I want to reach the person at that horse farm, but I want to reach the person in that shack too. And if they, won't, if they can't afford what I'm providing or if I can't help them understand that they can't afford it, um, then God didn't call us to only reach this, this group or that group. He, re, he sent us to go out and reach everybody. And so you're not for... for Per unit of resources that go in, you're not really getting much to show for it. And really, you know, like for example, microgreens, and again, it's not completely used that way, but in most of the high-end restaurants, they pay a lot of money for those. But you know what they use them for? Nobody eats them. They just use them for decorations. Nobody eats them. They get thrown out into the into the trash. And so, listen, if it's a way of, of having a... a, a an, entrance into a relationship with people, I'm not oppositional to that being done. I'm just saying that, that um, 
We need to do what we need to do to reach as many people as we can possibly reach, to make it as accessible to as many people as we can possibly make it accessible to. Well, they can only, they can only provide the nutrients that are available to them. And so when you germinate a seed, for example, when you germinate a seed, it makes the nutrients that are in it more available. But it, it, um, there was a, a pop song. It was, I don't remember, my date how old I am. Uh, it was back in the 80s or something like that. And it was it was nothing from nothing still leaves, leaves nothing. And so if it has it, it has it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you, know, you, you can go to uh, nutritional books and they'll say this is the nutritional content of certain foods. Well, first of all, the majority of those, the, the last time they were updated was about 1963. And, uh, and studies have been shown that you, they can take different soils in different parts of the country and they're going to have a completely different mineral content in them depending on the state of the soil and everything. So that's an important point. He was just saying that, that God built an incredible degree of resilience into life. And so life can tolerate incredible abuse and neglect and deprivation and still hold on. That doesn't mean we're thriving. It means we're existing. We're surviving, but we're not, we're not thriving. It's like I shared about the blueberries earlier. You know, they, they, the argument, they have to have this soil. No, they tolerate that soil. They survive in that soil, but that's not the best soil for them. Right, right. Yeah. Actually, actually, food being moved all over the place has been a little bit of, I mean, I don't know how much of a blessing, but it's been a blessing because some parts of the country are, well, down south, down in the south, women, when they'd get pregnant, would always say this was going to cost me a tooth or two because it, so much calcium was pulled from their bones in order to carry the pregnancy because they were so that the soils were so poor that that they would they would actually count on the fact that they were going to lose some teeth because so much so much was being pulled from their reserves in order to develop the the baby and yes that that study was done where they could show where the highly mineralized soil was there were very few um tooth teeth problems and where the soils were very poor there was a horrendous amount of them and so so many tons of tons of uh potential draft you know potential um inductees were rejected because they were just in and so it correlates now there's a lot of confusing things in 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 uh, society now and we really have to take a break here we're already 15 minutes over but yeah it, it is a good good way but you need to understand most people are looking for sugar content and so they're looking how high is the sugar content but it's not just the sugar content it, it, carrie reams developed that whole um process of evaluating the nutritional load in soils but there were some things that he didn't realize when he, he developed that. Like, for example, it's not just sugar content, it's pectin content and it's starch content um, in, the, in the plant. And in particular, the one that, the, the one that indicates how healthy, the, 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 how nutritious it is, is actually the pectin content, not just the sugar content. And then you don't want a sharp line. If you have a sharp line in there, that means the mineral content's not very high. You want a blurry line that tells you the mineral loads is pretty high. And so, yes, it is a good tool to evaluate. Take it to the grocery store and measure some stuff. You'd be pretty depressed. <laughs> so, let, folks, we have to take a break. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.